Welcome to 20th Century Geek. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to 20th Century Geek. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly. This episode, I catch up with friend of the show, Julian Darius, to discuss one of Alan Moore's less-talked-about works, Miracle Man. But before we get into the review and discussion, it's important to know how this series came about, and just a little of its complex history. In the 1950s, a British publisher, L. Miller & Sons Limited, had a licence to reprint Captain Marvel comics, You'll probably better know the character as Shazam at the moment. This was a huge financial success for them. This, however, came to a crashing halt in 1953, when the American publisher of Captain Marvel, Fawcett Comics, agreed to stop publishing the character after a court case determined that he was too similar to DC Comics' Superman. Not wanting to stop the flow of cash, Miller asked in-house artist Mike Anglo to create an approximation of the character for them to use. The result was the first proper British superhero, Marvel Man. Using old Captain Marvel scripts and some other unused material, they continued to publish stories right up until 1963. The character then stayed dormant until 1982, when Deskeen started publishing Warrior Magazine, a new sci-fi and horror comic anthology, and wanted to have a modern superhero strip in it. After discussing ideas with several potential writers, he received an outline from one of the other writers on the magazine, Alan Moore. Moore outlined a complete arc for the character and how his appearance in 1980s Britain would affect the people around him and the wider world. He also wanted to introduce a more realistic concept than that of the 1950s version. Dares was impressed by the proposals and pushed forward with Alan's story as Marvel Man. The story and strip started to receive good word-of-mouth response. However, it wasn't to last. Two key things happened. The first was that despite popularity, Warrior was not making enough to survive and came to an end in early 1985, with Marvel Man's story incomplete. The rest of the story was to be completed under the banner of several other publishing houses. The second was that Marvel Comics took notice and demanded that the character have a name change. This was a disagreement that went back and forth and wasn't completely resolved until Marvel actually took control of the character in 2013. Now, we have covered some of the history and I think it's time that I hand over to me and Julian to discuss the series in a lot more detail. Kimota Julian, welcome back to the show. Appreciate you coming on the podcast again. Uh, it's my honour, Scott. I, I, 
love your podcast, and it's my absolute pleasure to be here, especially to talk about Miracle Man. Yeah, this is going to be an interesting subject. So as you say, we're going to be talking about Miracle Man, uh, and specifically we're going to be talking about sort of, uh, well, yeah, so it's Miracle Man from the sort of the 80s onwards. Uh, we may cover some of the origins, but sort of the Alan Moore period onwards of uh, a complex character and some of Alan Moore's uh, earliest works. So we'll we'll dig straight in. Really. So what what's your sort of first exposure to uh, Miracle Man? That, boy, that is amazing for me to think about uh, because I think it, it changed my life. Um, you know, it was it was Eclipse, and I was not really aware of Eclipse. Uh, I wasn't really following most of their titles, but uh, somehow I stumbled onto uh, Miracle Man and onto uh, the early Alan Moore issues, which Eclipse had printed a lot of them, and so there were those issues sitting around comic shops. And I was aware of Alan Moore, and I thought, oh, I didn't know about this, I'll read this. And it just blew my mind. I loved the multiple stories in a single issue. I loved um, that they were doing, you know, each chapter had a kind of like different feel. Mm. Uh, you know, Moore did some of that same stuff uh, of changing perspectives or narrative style and V for Vendetta. And it blew my mind. And I just tracked down everything. Uh, you know, I tracked down uh, the trade paperbacks and. Uh, you know, the Neil Gaiman stuff, and uh, just loved it, and it became sort of, I mean, I was already schooled in revisionism and kind of, you know, Watchmen and Dark Knight, but the idea that there was basically another Watchmen sitting out there that nobody had read, you know, um, and that for my money was kind of more interesting in some ways, um, you know, just completely blew my mind. What, what was yours? Uh, well, actually, it's uh, I many many years ago, sort of uh, early two thousand. I first got when I got back into comics. Um, I was picking up sort of um, just I was picking up old issues of two thousand AD, and uh, a local charity shop had a whole bunch in a stack, and in the stack as well as two thousand AD were two copies of Warrior. Um, I think there were issues. Well, some of the early ones, sort of five and six, or something like that. Um, I don't have them anymore because they were weren't in very good condition. But part of that was um, Miracle Man or Marvel Man, and um, yeah, I sort of read it because it had sort of you know other bits in there. I think one of them had V for Vendetta in and some other stuff. And it was when I sort of went, oh my god, this is this sort of regional Alan Moore. Um, and like I say, it was it was interesting because I'd never heard of it. I, I wasn't as well versed as I am now, and. Um, as you, I think as you did, sort of, I went and I went to find out more about it, and then and then I knew bits and pieces, but I never could find any. Um, or I, di I didn't track down any paperbacks, and it wasn't until Marvel reprinted the entire run um, in the later 2010s, I think 2011, 2012, um, or 2015 even. So it was, it was 2015 that they came out. Um, that yeah, I read the whole thing and. As you say, I found that I was like, oh my god, like this is a, almost like a precursor to Watchmen, and I don't think anyone's really like, why is no one talking about this as much as they? I think they should be. So, yeah, you know, one of the things that fascinates me about it is that, and I love Warrior. I mean, I have, I have most of, of Warrior too. Mm. Uh, uh, but 
I think one of the things that is fascinating about Alan Moore's Miracle Man is that basically, like, book one is a precursor to the Watchmen, right? Mm. I mean, and, and you can see uh, sort of like early revisionism, a lot of the sort of taking superheroes very seriously, uh, very realistically, and trying to elevate um, superhero narrative towards something that was literary and using narrative devices that comics just weren't using at the time. Um, all of that stuff is there that kind of flowers into Watchmen. But what's fascinating to me is book three, and I, and I think that most you know Miracle Man fans are either book one or book three, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously book two is kind of you know lopsided, but um, but book three is after Watchmen, and so. You know, book three is kind of like the last great revisionist superhero thing that Alan Moore did. So, you know, before he, you know, like he does Spawn in the 90s and he mm-hmm. comes back and does like ABC in the 2000, around 99. But, um, but really, book three is kind of like, okay, I've done Watchmen. Um, here's this kind of denouement to the entire 80s uh, revisionist transformation of superheroes where it's kind of going in this very literary way that is in some ways closer to Sandman in some of its concerns. It's kind of like uh, much more ambitious literary project than and, and more long form than book one. So I think there's a way in which like Moore's Miracle Man is kind of both a precursor to Watchmen and a response to Watchmen at the same time. No, I'm so glad you said it about what what you said there about Sandman as well, is because that's very much how I sort of, um, you know, how I, I read it. Really, is that it's it's, um, you know, I mean, like you say, book one is, it's a, um, like a it's almost like a gritty reboot, telling, um, you know, it's sort of like it, it. I love the fact that it takes a rather sort of silly 50s comic which you know we know that 50s and 60s comics were very sort of of their time and it's very playful and sort of thing and it takes that and puts it in a in a scenario where it, it, it even questions it like you know it says in part of it that we had all these adventures and it was almost like we were playing games like neither side really wanted to to, to do harm to the other but you know we had to stop them sort of thing and then when you when the, you get the twist and um, just for, just for warnings, there probably will be lots of spoilers about what, uh, Miracle Man, but, but it's still worth reading even with no, the knowledge. When you learn the twist of how they they you know this this um, history existed and it was all manufactured to be this sort of, but and it was based on a comic and it's actually shown to be the fact that the the villain uh, Doctor Gargunza has read Shazam or read Captain Marvel is genius. Yeah. Um, and I love the fact that so th- this is almost like that. You know, we've got all these. One of the things they talk about a lot in cinema these days and movies is gritty reboots. Oh, it's a, it's a real gritty reboot, and it's thrown out all the other stuff. You know, it happened with like Bond and all this other stuff. And you think, well, this is the first one. This is like a real taking a, a character that you know. It's like taking the '66 Batman and and, and moving straight to Nolan's Batman Begins. Um, 
And I love that, that it takes it serious and puts it in that scenario where you can question it. And it's like, no, no, this is science. There was a real reason. They, you know, it's not, I mean, it's science fiction, but it's still a, a valid reason. And I think that's so... I really enjoy book one for those reasons. Um, I do too. And I, and, I, and I think that, you know, even more than Watchmen, I mean, you know, Watchmen is a response to, um, you know, the Charlton superheroes, right? Mm. Um it's just a greedy Charles and superheroes reboot that is uh, that had all of its names changed, um, but it doesn't incorporate all those old Charles and comics. And I think that you know, as a kind of, uh, I mean, if we want to think of it as uh, a sort of first salvo of revisionism that kind of flowers into Dark Knight and Watchmen. What a strong first salvo to say mm. this whole earlier mode of superheroes, of, you know, the smite, the laughing at the end after the villain is defeated and, and the just sort of silliness, the, the silly, unrealistic absurdity of it all. Um, all of that is incorporated and, and subsumed within this new work in a way that it's so much more ambitious than just saying, uh, I mean, it, it would be like if you jumped from, you know, Batman 66 uh, to Chris Nolan's mm. Batman, and and in Chris Nolan's Batman, like, you know, Batman's watching videos of Batman 66, or yeah. like, you know, I mean, I, I mean, in a way where it's incorporated and therefore just demolished intellectually. Yeah. And that, that's what I love about it, because it's so sort of like, it's, an, it's eye-opening in that respect, that it, it does, it absorbs everything that's happened and acknowledges it and sort of like says, well, we're not going to get rid of that, but this is what it is. Um, I, yeah, and I just think, I just think those, for that, like you said, you're either a, a book one or a book three, and I do flip between the two, actually. Um, but I, 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 get, I do get such joy from book one. Um yeah, me too. Uh, just because I, of that, because it takes those things in. Yeah, me too. And I, I, I also like the, I like the short form of book one. It's mm. a short form chapter. Um, uh, you know, and about the thing about like kind of incorporating this earlier version. Um, I think that one of the things that superheroes, you know, dark reboots and uh, revisionism, uh, gets hated for or criticized for is this sort of, um, you know, uh, ignoring the fun of these earlier stories, mm. ignoring the fact that like Batman 66 spoke to a part of us. And I think that, um, and I think that Miracle Man, because of that narrative device is able to speak to the appeal of this earlier stuff. So, you know, uh, Mike Moran, you know, talks about how, yes, these stories are absurd and, and they're dumb. Um, but having said that, they were also wonderful adventures, and I thought the world worked this way. And the way in which uh, he is an orphan, you know, um, Garganza experimented on these people who were powerless. Mm. And the idea that these silly adventures, you know, I think they spoke to a lot of us. They 
speaking for myself. They spoke to, you know, a, a wounded, sad uh, kid. And, you, you know, for a lot of these superhero stories, you could, no matter what your home life was, whether you, you know, had parents or, or had a sad home life or were just depressed or whatever, these were stories of um, bright adventure and wonder that spoke to a part of you. And I think that that sort of innocence, that sort of appeal, is usually just ignored in these dark stories. And in Miracle Man, it's incorporated in a way that um, I find much more satisfying. Mm. Well, I find the thing I find most interesting about the sort of the, the book one is what, like you say, is that you know you said there about uh, Mike Moran when he, he, he talks to his wife. And he's trying to explain, you know, when he first sort of, um, he says Komoto for the first um, the first time in the book, and he goes home, and he is Miracle Man, and, you know, he explains everything to her, this past. And he explains that sort of, you know, oh yeah, I was given this power of the universe of saying the, the magic word and all this other stuff by this being, this, this grand physicist or whatever, this extraterrestrial physicist. And she sort of, she does, she laughs at him, and she's like, oh, this is absurd. And he says... It is, but this is my life. Like you know, I, I I appreciate how absurd it is, but this is what I remember. Um, and I, like you say, so they do sort of incorporate it. But then when I say that the thing I like is when they do find out that that was a, a fiction, and actually all of that was it was you know that was uh, their entire time was actually spent, or at least the majority of the time was actually them spent in a comatose dream state. It makes it more tragic. Um, because he's saying, like, "Oh, this is my life. This is what I remember. This is my existence." And to have that taken away, like, not only is he experimenting, he's taken out of the world, but then his he finds his life is actually a fabrication. Is even like more tragic, really. Yeah, I think so, and and it reminds me of um, you know, so many stories that really have only become popular since two thousand, like you know, The Matrix. Um, and now there's a complaint that, like, in Hollywood, uh, a lot of pitches are sort of like, what if everything you knew was wrong, you know? Mm. Well, Miracle Man was doing that in the early 80s. Yeah. Um, and, and, yeah, I do find it tragic, and, and I find it, but I find it a touching uh, allegory for growing up and mm. gr- kind of growing out of superheroes, because... In a lot of ways, like, you know, when Mike Moran is talking to his wife, I mean, that is a lot of superhero fans back in the day before we had these movies and acceptance of the genre. You know, we had to negotiate those conversations and say, I kind of like Batman, you know? And, uh, you know, and our friends, you know, kids who are older or girlfriends or or whatever would say, um, you know this is a, a... and, and, and we would say, yeah, but, you know, Spider-Man was bitten by a radioactive spider, <laughs> and that seems normal to us, right? Yeah. And then, you know, our, our girlfriend or whatever, you know, our older brother or whatever would say, yeah, you know radioactivity doesn't work that way, right? And, <laughs> and it would kind of, like, suddenly dawn on us, like, oh, yeah, that's dumb, isn't it? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's true. I mean, it is, it's a... It is, it's a that's one of the things I like as well about the whole series, um, and we'll get onto the wider themes. But 
it seems to like you say um miracle man and and well more, miracle man more than mike moran sort of he he has an overreaching arc that, that obviously um concludes with uh, him living in olympus um and it's i think it's funny that when you look through through like um and I'll be interested in your take on this. It sort of struck me reading it again. As you go through like, books one, two, and three, it almost goes through that sort of the the, um, uh, the, the certain archetypes. So in book um, one, you know, usually you get that original, the origin, and you get the sort of, uh, as a reboot, moving on from that the original sort of the silliness into the seriousness. And then he gets a sidekick, or at least he sort of thinks he gets his sidekick back in... Um, Kid Miracle Man, which you know, they, and they twist that, um, and then you know, in the comics, obviously, that's the thing is you have a lone superhero followed by the sidekick, and then they introduce in book two um, the dog, you know, Miracle Dog, um, which again is a twist on that stereotype, especially in the Superman books of like, okay, well you've had uh, you know the sidekick, and now you've got the dog, the pet thing, so whether it be Ace <laughs> or Crypto. And then in book three, they introduce the female equivalent. So you get Miracle Woman. Uh, and again, they put a twist on that. So it's almost like the books follow that, as I would expect from a, like a, a almost like the 60s and uh, 50s and 60s books of introducing people like, you know, Superboy, Supergirl, Crypto, or uh, Robin, um, Batwoman and Ace, or, you know, Aqualad and, and whatever, and Mira. <laughs> It's, it's that's the trope of those characters are introduced, uh, but then they're twisted. There's that, there's that Miracle Man or Alan Moore twist on them. And I thought this, this was the first time I noticed it reading this this, this time round. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's certainly true. And I, I haven't thought of it as a kind of progression like that uh, within those three books. But uh, And I, I've got to think about that more. Um but you're, but you're right that it, that it has that same sort of, like, accumulation of the Miracle Man family. Mm. And the thing is that Miracle Man family was always part of, you know, the old McAngelo stories. Um, you know, that part of Captain Marvel was, I mean, there was a comic, mar- the, mm. you know, Marvel family. Um, you know, the uh, Marvel Man had his Marvel Man family. Yeah. Um, and so... Perverting that, twisting that, incorporating that in some way was was sort of key to Moore's idea of updating Marvel Man and updating this this what he saw in his original pitch as sort of the first British superhero, sort of mm. reclaiming the superhero for Britain in a way and being proud of our uh, I say our being proud of his national story of the superhero that it wasn't just America so uh, but I mean it's interesting that like you know, over the course of those three books you have the increasing rollout of more and more uh, other superheroes right mm. and, and there's also like Big Ben at the end of the yes. first book um, and in the third book you know he's he's reformed and uh, and you have you know Wolf Smith and mm. There's a sort of like superhero family, but it's not like, it doesn't feel like that, right? It doesn't feel like, you know, a, um, you know, Aquaman arc in which, like, you know, you introduce Aqualad in the first movie and in the second you get Aqua Dog or Aqua Dolphin or something. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's that sort of, it is, it's sort of a, a re- 
the, the twist because the, the, I suppose you know you could say that um, when in their old you know in the old guys in that sort of uh, the the fifties and sixties comics whether it be Robin or Aqualad or Supergirl or whatever they they served a purpose from a publishing point of view. Um, but they they were very clunky in a narrative perspective, you know. So sort of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I always remember reading. You had Superboy, um, and originally, you know, it was Super, it was Clark Kent as a as a boy sort of thing, and it really sort of messed up. You know, if you were reading it as canon or continuity, it was a real mess. So they they re sort of jigged it and stuff. But with this, it's like like you say, it rolls out through all of those elements, um, and introduces those characters. In a in a similar way, in a, you know, over those three books, I think is like a time is is, is that 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 um, the passing through those phases of uh, the superhero arc of being you know alone, then the sidekick, and then the dog, and then the female version, and everything. But they're, they're, they're all they're all key to the narrative. They're all part of this overreaching story that sort of results in um, you know the end the end state really, at least of the, of the golden age or of the more era. Mm-hmm. Well, I, what I find so fascinating is the sort of brutal logic that's applied to each of these characters. Um, you know, the, it's you know, it's so easy when we talk about sort of like dark reboots to think, um, you know, uh, it, it's Aquaman, but he's lost a hand and he's angry and he's a badass now. You know, and it seems so cheap, right? Mm. Um, but, like, the whole point behind Kid Miracle Man being evil, not to spoil, but we've got to, is if you had a boy who had this power, power corrupts, and what do we know about this boy? I mean, he's glommed onto Marvel Man, but if you take him, you know, I, I don't know how old he was, right? Like an eight-year-old kid. And you give him the powers of Superman. Yeah. He's never had to learn restraint, right? I mean, we learn restraint by being beaten up on the playground and figuring out what to do about it. We learn restraint by having a dog and learning to care for that dog. Mm. If somebody said, here are the powers of a god at eight. Um, You know, I mean, you learn restraint by having relationships and hurting people and getting hurt and learning not to do that again, right? Yes. Um, or how to be better. That eight-year-old boy never had to learn to be better. Um, and so the way in which, like one of the things that revisionism, you know, was very interested in was the ways in which superpowers would deform human psychology. So you see that in Watchmen with, like, Dr. Manhattan, right? Mm. I mean, he loses touch with his humanity. Um, you see it in Rorschach with, you know, a, the idea that basically a guy who goes out and beats up criminals like Batman is not, in a costume, is not going to be psychologically well. Yes. But he's also going to encounter things like a kidnapped girl being killed that are going to push him further over that edge. Mm. And with Kid Miracle Man, it's this idea of power corrupting. Um, and with, uh, and with Miracle Woman, you know, I love that she's smarter than him. Yes. He has, you know, he has these, like, inherited notions. He has so much sexual repression. 
closer to us. And she is kind of somebody who doesn't have all that baggage and says, yes, I have power. I don't have to be cruel about it. I don't have to be deformed in a way of kid miracle man. But, um, but I also don't have to be quite so beholden to these humans. Yeah, I also think, like you say, the choices they make. I mean, like you say, it's um, um, you know, the, the the human version of uh, I forget his name or something. Bates, um, you know, and then you've got Kid Miracle Man is his um, super version, and he chooses to remain and age as that super version. Um, and they say the Miracle Woman decides the other way. She she chooses to choose her human side, and she becomes a doctor, and she chooses to better chooses to try and better humanity as a human. And it is, I suppose, it is that thing of sort of, you know, um, element of maturity and, and choices. Uh, and she obviously, she seems more humble as well in her sort of human form in, until obviously she's forced to turn back as well as this of the story progresses. Um, and addressing that, I, I just, yeah, you say it's, it's that thing of like, there's a, I suppose it is, it's maturity as a child. He's given these superpowers. Um, but he still, they both sit almost dormant, like they're waiting for something to activate them. There's, you know, then there needs to be that trigger. And um, Bates, or Kid Miracle Man, is, is looking to build an empire through business and, and through his own, you know, manipulating uh, people with his own intelligence and other stuff. Well, she sort of sits and tries to be qu- keep quiet. And uh, it's one of the things I was curious about in this scenario, in this reading of it is Moran hasn't been Miracle Man for, I think it says 18 years, at the start of the book. Um, yeah. And he, he he attends the opening of a nuclear power plant. Um, and then when he's put under pressure, um, some terrorists sort of try to take hold of the event and sort of uh, he's, he's struck upside the head. And under all this pressure, so pre- under all this pressure, he has a flash of a memory and says the word, the, the, his magic word, which is Kimota, which is obviously atomic, backwards. And then that's it. That, that releases that releases Miracle Man. Um, but it felt, this is the first time ever when I've read it, that actually I felt, was that, that was that an accident? It, you know, it's this whole thing of fate. Is it, was this, was this bound to happen? Um, you know, it sat dormant inside um, Mike Moran for all these years. Was this bound to happen, right. or could have he could he could he have gone on for the rest of his life as as Moran and not known any of this again? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the terrorist thing is a little clunky. Mm. It's beautifully illustrated, but it but it's sort of like I think at its best, it's intended to be exactly that kind of incident, right? Like. Yeah that you're talking about, like, it could have gone on, but something was going to happen. Um, and it just so happens that this is, this is the day, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, eventually he was going to be hit by a car, or maybe he could have gone on and died, but um, something was going to happen, most likely, to, to trigger this. Mm-hmm. What, what's interesting to me is, um, I mean, first of all, like, you know, even though those old stories are kind of positioned as silly and sort of wish fulfillment, there's a kind of wish fulfillment in this too. And it's there in the Neil Gaiman stuff when when Gaiman talks 
um, the religions of, uh, you know, this new world. Mm. And, um, and, you know, it's there in the Alan Moore stuff when, uh, during the fight with uh, Kid Miracle Man in, in number 15, um, you know, the penultimate issue of Alan Moore's run, when the narrative just stops. Mm. And, and it kind of incorporates the Warpsmith uh, story that has, you know, had since been ruled out of continuity, although it didn't need to be, um, where, you know, it's just sort of the narrative stops and says, here are the different versions of what happened here. And there's a kind of hint that uh, in this sort of mythologizing that, you know, I remember you know, there's a hint that, like, um, maybe Mike Moran, this is all in Mike Moran's head. Mm. And he, Mike Moran is dreaming us. And he had, like, a brain tumor or something. And this whole, like, turning into Miracle Man at the end of that, you know, chapter one is a sort of wish fulfillment. Um, and, and similarly, like, the way in which Mike Moran is emasculated, um, you know, his wife is more successful than, than him. Yeah. I mean, all of, all of these sort of, like, superhero tropes of, like, I grew up reading superhero comics, and now I'm a middle-aged guy, and I've got a beer belly, and, you know, in Mike Moran's case, he, he has a, a beautiful... They don't turn out so well for Mike Moran, but it's it's he makes a choice though, doesn't he? That's the thing. Um, And again, that's the other thing I think that's interesting is, you know, you look at the tropes of of super anyone with heightened superpowers. So this isn't sort of um, isn't uh, you know Batman. This is Superman kind of level. Mike Moran he chooses in many ways to almost to commit suicide. You know, he, he acknowledges that actually, yeah, of, of the two of the two options, there is there's a better choice to be made here. Where actually, I'm not contributing. I'm not contributing. You know, to to the the breadth of humanity that the things that Miracle Man could. So really, I should step aside and let him do what he does. Um, and so there's there's almost like a nobility in that as well. It's sort of you know, it's an acceptance of your position, like you say, and. It's, it's, I suppose, yeah, is, I, is it the darker side of that wish fulfillment? Like, I wish I could be Superman. I wish I could. But then you think, well, actually, you've also got to accept that I'm not as good as that. Right. Yeah, I mean, I find that kind of a heartbreaking, intensely beautiful sequence. Mm. Um, and, you know, and here, you know, I have to I have to kind of talk about, you know, like Superman and and sort of, you know, I think that I mean, these things are, for me, you know, to me, Miracle Man is not just a story that makes certain narrative choices. 
it's a kind of manifesto about what the superhero is and what are good choices in a superhero story. Yeah. It is almost an article of faith for me that um, if you run the Superman story forward, he's not going to be Clark Kent forever. Yeah. He loves Lois, but, you know, I mean, think about it. He has X-ray vision. Uh, you know, like the, the way in which we, you know, like couples talk about um, how much they fart around each other. Or, mm. you know, you know, it's that kind of like, does this kill the romance? Um, what if you could see inside somebody? Yeah. <laughs> You're looking yeah. at their internal organs. I mean, <laughs> um, you know, this, and, and not only that, but, you know, you still love that person, but you can fly. Yeah. You can look at the Earth from outer space. I mean, you have a totally different perspective. And so, like in Watchmen, this notion leads to, you know, Dr. Manhattan saying, like, basically, I'm done with humanity, right? I mean, I don't care. I mean, what does it matter to me if the world is annihilated by nuclear war? Mm. Um, in Miracle Man, uh, you know, I mean, first of all, I think you run that story forward. The, his alter ego is not going to survive. Yeah. It's a, it's a fiction. Superman's not going to be Clark Kent or even have an alter ego in a hundred years when he's still alive. Yes. Um, I mean, that's a part of the vestige of him as a boy uh, thinking he was human. Um, the relationship with Lois Lane is not going to work out. Uh, if nothing else, she dies. But certainly they have entirely different worldviews. Um, they're like different species, right? I mean, it, it doesn't, you know, they're so different. Mm. Um, and eventually Superman's going to take over the planet. Yeah. Uh, or just leave and, and fly off into space like Dr. Manhattan, right? Yeah, and I think that's where this one comes to, isn't it? It's, it comes, let's see, it, it forwards to that notion of... Um, if you wound forward, like you know, he stays as Miracle Man or he stays as Superman, that super character. He's got super intelligence and super abilities. You jump to that point where, you know, it, I suppose in Watchmen he takes the more cynical view of, um, you know, Doctor Manhattan saying, "I'm I'm done with humanity. What do I care? I can see the past, present, and future as a single stream of images, and I can, you know, manipulate matter in all these different ways. What What does your single little Earth mean to me?" But in this, you you almost get this thing of in Miracle Man, he he almost takes on like a responsibility, um, and in creating, um, in creating Olympus with these other gods, he sort of takes on the responsibility of providing, I don't know, sort of hope and a future for humanity. It's 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 it for me it goes the other direction. It goes that other way of you know, mm-hmm. uh, like you say, giving to humanity rather than stepping away from it. Well, and this is an idea that's later explored in, in The Authority, which I, which I love so much. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a central conundrum in the superhero story. Um, you know, if you're Superman, why don't you till the fields of Africa, right? Why, why don't you make, uh, you know, there are whole countries of starving people. You can do something about this. Um, why don't you... Uh, 
Chi or, you know, nobody can stop North Korea. Superman can. Mm. Why is Superman letting the rest of us worry whether we're going to die in nuclear fire? Why is Superman allowing there to be concentration camps? Um, and, And if you were Superman and you do care about humanity, don't you have an obligation to stop that? It's, yeah, and I agree. It's a, it's a really interesting comic because whenever that sort of come up and they've tried to address it in the comics, it's it's always been the argument of well, I can't, we we can't get involved in um, we can't get involved in you know the we're not politically driven, so we can't get involved in the politics of the world. It's almost like the prime directive of <laughs> do you know what I mean? But they break it every episode or yeah. every issue. But it's it's um, you know it, it's. It is. It's, it's a really fine balance because you think, you know, if these super beings, if you had the Justice League, um, you know, ignoring Batman for now, but if you had these super powerful beings like Wonder Woman, Superman, Green Lantern, Aquaman, who runs the oceans and stuff, like, yeah, why haven't they just tidied up the world and gone, do you know what? Here it is. We fixed it. <laughs> this, yeah. this is what it is. But not only that, but I mean, they have a, they have a moral obligation to do so. Yeah. Um, you know, and it seems to me that that kind of prime directive, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, that, that is always used as an excuse to preserve the status quo. Mm. Um, so, you know, why, first of all, I mean, Superman having been raised as Clark Kent uh, feels human, right? I mm. mean, some of these superheroes are human. I mean, um, they're not from outer space. Uh, they have superpowers. The idea of not influencing human civilization well they do all the time yeah i mean why why can you stop lex luthor who's a human but you know if he tries to take over the government you've got to stop it but you know you're not going to uh arrest richard nixon um yeah. you know um, well it, it, it goes and, to uh, i recently did a review of um the dark knight returns and one of the biggest one of my biggest issues with that with that book is the use of Superman. You know, it's it's, it's wound forward as you say, and Superman is allowing himself to, he's being used as a sort of a secret weapon, almost in a Doctor Manhattan kind of way, by the U.S. government. And so this idea of him being the sort of um, the balanced, you know, the, the 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 big blue boy, the big blue Boy Scout, is thrown out the window because all he is is. A tool of the Americans' foreign policy. Yeah. But why Americans' foreign policy? Why is it, you know? So it, it, I really, it really rankles me that that depiction of Superman. Um, but then it's sort of you know. So you do think, well, if you are better than this, if you are supposed to be better than us, and you can stand above it all, then why why haven't you done these things? It is it's it's interesting that you know this tries to address that, I suppose, in a, in a way. Um, right. I'm- I mean, I think that, you know, what happens, I mean, in the, in the case of, of uh, book three, it's not that Miracle Man, you know, decides, oh, okay, it, it's time to address, you know, Syria or, or uh, you know, Russians in Afghanistan or whatever. It's, of course, the defamation of London, mm-hmm. um, you know, which I think is, is stunningly beautiful. Um and which is just moving to think about. And, um, you know, it, it's the, and that gets at another central problem of the superhero, which is 
guys like this, the world is going to change. Yeah. I mean, that's true in Watchmen, but, um, you know, there's this kind of deformation of history. Run this story forward far enough, and, um, you know, think of all the Marvel movies, right? I mean, we watch lots of kind of wide-scale devastation, but, you know, you just kind of assume, well, they rebuilt it all, and, and there's no change to the status quo. Mm. Um, you know, the idea that these... I mean, imagine if in the first Avengers movie, you see the civilians die. Yeah. You know, you see how devastating... I mean, you want to talk about, like, Tony Stark has PTSD in Iron Man 3? What mm. about every person in the world? watching what happens to a metropolitan city, to New York City, as it's being invaded. 9-11 is nothing compared to this. The world's religions are going to change. The world's governments are going to change. Yeah. Policy is going to change. The world is fundamentally different after this in a way that makes 9-11 look like a blip. Um, and the idea that, yeah, there are going to be casualties, um, you know, this all-powerful Superman-like villain is going to destroy a major city, and well, a city that means something, especially in a British narrative. Well, it's interesting. There are, there are a couple of things to sort of put, um, to pull on that thread. Is is well, first, if you think of Man of Steel, um, yeah, you know the the, the Zack Snyder film, and it, it does it. The, the depictions of destruction at, at the end of that film, you know, you say about. Um, the Avengers. And the Avengers is an incredibly sort of like you say it's but that's an invasion. That's like a it's like it's an invading army. Uh it's like a blitzkrieg. That is almost like the Blitz, um, you know, the British Blitz on New York from an alien uh, invader. And so we can sort of see that as a sort of, you know, the Avengers aren't going to be blamed or aren't going to be seen in a specific way because it's they are the protecting force. Um and they haven't chosen the battleground. The battleground's almost been chosen for them. However, when you watch Man of Steel, and it ends up being, you know, granted there's the two um, world changes, machines, whatever, but the majority of the destruction ends up being done by these two superhuman, these super beings, these aliens that come down and just cause mass destruction. So the fight between Zod and Superman is epically destructive. And like you say, you know, um, it it became a massive debate of this thing of like, well, they fought through that city... And I don't care how many times they tried to say, oh, these people got evacuated and they did this, they did that. No, no, no. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of people were killed in that city. And so when you see the ramifications of it in... you know, When you see things like Batman's response in Batman v Superman and you see people sort of like um, decrying Superman, I'm almost like, yeah, no, you're right. Because he is. The, his, yeah. the irresponsibility of that I don't care how you describe it, like he could have done something differently. And, I, and so, you know, I, I understand that then killing Zod is his only option, and I get that. But the, the, the destruction that's gone before it, like, you're right, that would change the world view of, oh, okay, well, now actually we live in a world where there is a being that if they wake up in the wrong mood, <laughs> yeah. they could right. destroy everything. That, 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 right, and. and- you know, there are, you know, there's criticism of, like, well, you know, Superman's not concerned, you know, there, there are scenes of Superman grabbing people who are falling and saving them. Um, but, you know, 
when you have Superman and Zod hitting each other, they're going to punch each other through buildings. Mm-hmm. And you see that, you've always seen that in Superman comics. Mm. But they're always flying through offices and conveniently nobody's hurt. Yeah. They're going to hit people. Superman is going to remember smashing through human beings. This is going to change him psychologically. Um, you know, there's that wonderful sequence in number 15 where, uh, where there's a caption and Miracle Man says, I'd like to say that I checked the car for whether it had people in it. But yes. I didn't. Well, before we get onto the violence, because I mean, onto the way it's depicted, because Alan Moore, this is this is one of the skills of Alan Moore. I think this is why it's so good, and why I think this book is so impactful. I say book three is so so impactful because it's told in flashback. We, you know, to be clear, so it, it's the narrative is is Miracle Man sort of relaying this as a sort of um, as a narrative, like he is remembering it. And we talked about, uh, there's a centre page, I'm just looking at it now actually, but there's a, there's two pages. There's the first page, double page spread of uh, Mick Moran, Mike Moran, giving up his life to become Miracle Man. Like he's, he's made that choice um, to become um, Miracle Man full time. Uh, so you know, so that that's where you see that him him releasing that power onto the world is a choice because he feels it's a benevolent choice. And it's like you say, it's a really sort of thought-provoking um, sequence. What you find on the, other, the next page, in something to remember, is that it's Kid Miracle Man, so it's his former sidekick that, is, that destroys London. But Kid Miracle Man um, was, de- was defeated uh, to an extent in the book one. Uh, and was t- it was, in- it was captured and trapped inside um, the psyche of... Uh, the child Bates, I forget his name, Bates, but the kid, and he's in a mental institution, and so what you learn is that through, and this is horrific, but yeah. but and so you know you've had this sort of like benevolent choice to help the world by becoming Miracle Man. That again, this is the thing of Alan Moore twisting things. This young lad is tra- is now in this in this institution, which you know is is. I don't know if it's sort of a mental um, uh, facility, like a psychiatric facility or whatever. It almost looks like a borstal kind of thing. But basically, he's about to be raped by a bunch of other boys in the locker rooms. And it's that thing of him saying, he sort of, they go, I'm not going to do the dialogue, but it goes through. It's three boys pinning him down while another one tries to ra- attempts to rape him. And he finally gives in. He's been holding back this evil, this character, for months He's been tortured internally, constantly, 24-7. And it's this thing that finally twists him and he gives in and says his own magic word, Miracle Man. And he release, he unleashes the evil to rescue himself. And I think it's, you know, it's, 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 um, it's almost like perfect Alan Moore of that thing of you go, you, you, you know, you look at one page and you think, oh, that's really, you know, that's tragic, but it, well, it's tragic, but it's in a good way. You know, you understand it to turn to this horrific moment of the evil being unleashed, um, it's 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 so well done. It's such a gut punch that it's um, it, it, you know it, then you, then he go, they go on to the battle. Yeah, I just don't know what you thought about that, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a that I haven't uh, thought about that exact juxtaposition, but you know, you're right. And one is sort of depicted as an act of compassion, but but also of you know, there's a sense in which both of them give up, right? Mm. 
Florian gives up on, you know, his human self who's lost fingers. I mean, you know, he's lost his wife. Yeah. Um, you know, he knows that there is no place for him in a world with Miracle Man. Yes. Um, he doesn't make sense anymore. He can't measure up. Um, and so there's a kind of surrender, there's a kind of, um, it is a suicide, but there's a kind of um, sense of uh, just having run to the natural conclusion of the story. I'm exhausted. Um, and then with Bates, I mean, that you know, inevitably, uh, something, you know, it's like you were saying about uh, Mike Moran with the terrorists, that something's going to happen. Mm. Um, not all of these institutions are good places. Um, and, and I think that, you know, while, while maybe that sequence, you know, you could say it's a little stereotypical, it's certainly hard to read, but there's a kind of surrender that he does too. And I feel as if both characters are kind of surrendering to a sense of narrative inevitability that you run this story forward enough, Clark Kent doesn't make sense. You run the story forward enough, and of course, when all you have to do is say the magic word, at some point, Bates is going to say the magic word. Something's going to happen, and this evil is unleashed on the world, uh, and the world is never the same. You know, there's such power in, I say that word, and I unleash the superhero. Yeah. And... You know, in that in that quote from Nietzsche, right? I give you, you know, the Superman. He is this lightning. He is this madness. You know, using the Captain Marvel trope, the the Marvel Man trope of just this one word unleashes the superhero on the world, and what's going to happen is the world will never be the same. Yes. The world is going to be traumatized. I think it's so powerful. I, I agree because I think that because the way it's then relayed in in the next part is I mean Bates as you say Bates is released or Kid Miracle Man is released on the world and he just goes and the, the the level of destruction that's depicted in this book is there are pages that like you say that are beautifully illustrated but almost hard to look at that they're like some depiction of hell that they're, they're they're absolutely horrific in in you know, some of the details. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's those, those armless people wandering through the wreckage, you know? Yeah. And we haven't mentioned, you know, John Poddleton, who, uh, you know, just turned in brilliant work, especially by 15 and 16. Yeah. It's, 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 it's and that's what I'm saying about this book. It's just, um, you know, people talk about Watchmen so often, and you know, and not to down downplay that at all. Cause it is an amazing book, but this this is, I believe, on par with it. I mean, I've, I've just found the panels you were talking about. And it, just to read this, so this is the narration from uh, Marvel. Man it says there were so many vehicles, all trying to get out of London. My apologists have claimed that the car I first hurled at Bates was empty. Those who'd been inside, having previously escaped, I'm sorry, but that isn't true. And so it is. It's like you say. It's it's the brutality of this. Is actually a. He's actually saying, they admit this is a war. This is an out and out war between two, godlike super beings, and 
we are just sort of, you know, it, it, we are just in the way until this is done. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're rats on the battlefield. And, you know, humans are dropping shells from mortars on each other. What, does, what can those rats do? I mean, we are that irrelevant in mm. a world of superheroes. And yeah, and that, that's exactly it. So, you know, so when it comes to the end, uh, and, and there's a great um, again, you know, Alan Moore with his um, his mirroring and sort of roundabout. The, the book starts with um, the book starts with an image of uh, John Bates. It's, John, it's Johnny Bates. It's actually Kid Miracle Man sat in his initial destruction. You know, legs crossed, cradling the severed head of a woman. He's, he's clearly killed. And the book ends with Miracle Man sat in the wreckage sometime later, c- cradling the, you know a, a skull that's that's clearly decomposed since. Um, and I just think this, I think issue fifteen is just so well done, um, and it, it sort of rounds out to the you know the finale. Sort of the, the the final book almost acts like an epilogue to tidy all things up. Um, yeah, and I, I love that epilogue. But, I mean, I'm amazed by how um, how many just sort of grace notes and, and little touches are just perfect. Um, you know, for example, um, when Kid Miracle Man is unleashed again and he destroys and he's destroying London, Miracle Man and Miracle Woman are playing. Yes, they are, they are frolicking. They, they're gods. They don't have a care in the world. And they see the smoke rising from London from space. Yes. You know, this sense of like, um, you know, of course, we don't have a sort of like a Jimmy Olsen wristwatch that uh, tells Superman, you better get here before the damage starts. Um, you know, the idea that you would be frolicking carefree as God, and, and this would have been beneath your notice. Mm. Of course, you wouldn't have noticed this. And the horror of how many people have already died that you see the smoke from space. Um, you know, it reminds me of 9-11, of, uh, you know, the, the smoke from the Twin Towers, um, you know, which was seen from space. I mean... Uh, you know, there's something about that kind of like godlike position of looking down on the earth, and of, of course, these aren't omniscient sort of Christian gods who are aware, omniscient and aware of everybody's uh, inner thoughts and mm. what they're doing. Um, and, you know, to me, that's so perfect the way that's done. Um, oh you know, yeah, no. I like the, the just the point that you make is, is they're not omniscient. These aren't, you know, these aren't God. Is that These they they are closer, and, and obviously that's why they, they call it Olympus. These are closer to Greek or Roman pantheon of gods, aren't they? They sort of they have godlike powers, but they exist as physical beings that that oversee, um, which is obviously the the, the final result. Um, but I also like sort of the the final the final battle, like you say, that that moment of how he wins the fight. You've had this all this mass this mass um, 
this mass battle, this total destruction. Um, and they, they don't, I mean, they, they te- technically they don't actually defeat Miracle Man. They sort of, you know, they eventually have, they force him, as you said, to, to say the word again. Um, mm-hmm. his, his magic word, Miracle Man. And then you've got Miracle Man, he's again faced with that choice because you've got, you know, he returns to back, returns back to being um, Johnny Bates, the young child who's um, clearly been traumatised. And yeah. Miracle Man is then left with the choice of, well, it's happened once, what what can we do? What, you know, so... And again, I feel there's that, this is the answer of... Oh, sorry, this is answering that question of, as we've said about Superman and, and the sort of the status quo and... The, the morality of those superheroes that they they, you know, they do not kill regardless of you know what actually happens and in this we've already addressed the fact that he's the miracle man is willing to kill to try and stop Johnny and it, the answer is a miracle man this godlike being has to kill it has to kill a child to save the world yeah, yeah. I think he snapped his neck um and, and then cradles the dead Johnny Bates uh, in, in the midst of the wreckage of uh, what his decision, you know, it, it feels to me as if in book one, he's making a decision as Mike Moran. Mm. You know, he's still closer to that fantasy world of those old 50s and 60s comics, right? Yeah. Um, in which the superhero doesn't kill. And you know, of course, it's the right decision to kill this child. Um, he has to. I mean, he all of this blood is on his head mm. for having let Johnny live. And in the midst of all of this, uh, this could never happen again. Um, and he has to make a different decision. And at that point, he's not the man he was. I mean, he's not the guy who is still psychologically half in Gargunza's fantasies and half in that old superhero world of primary colors. Um, now he's the revisionist superhero. Now he's a mature adult superhero who, um, yeah, is going to be faced with this kind of decision. And that's the thing is this you know the sixteen issues there were three books you know um, it, it is all like one long story and I say I, I find that it is it's it's a progression to that moment of of you know um, you know we we say that adult superhero but it is almost like godhood isn't it it's that thing of taking responsibility and actually taking making that decision then to say well I'm going to use these powers not to just fly around and you know, um, stop bank robbers or my, my own version of, of Lex Luthor. I'm actually going to use these powers to, to, to better humanity, to make the world a better place. Um, right. And I, and, I, and I think that, you know, it's fascinating that London had to die for him to do that. Mm. Uh, you know, that's not his first choice. Um, but in the wake of this, in the wake of everyone having seen this, right? I mean, it's also his public outing. Um, You know, the fact that superheroes exist in this world is known to the British government, Mm. but it's not, you know, I mean, there's some footage and there's some conspiracy theories, but it's 
Yeah. Um, and in the wake of that, it's like, I'm out now, and I kind of caught this by saving Bates' life, and I have a responsibility, and in the wake of all those dead, I can't go back to just pretending I can stop bank robberies, you know? It is. It's that thing of... it's. If you wanted to sort of raise this up to uh, allegory for you know for the for the real world, it, it, you you can look at um, you know Miracle Man as being and we, we I know we're talking this through as a you know as a uh, allegory for superheroes and sort of you know revisionists uh, superheroes, but if you take it as an allegory for like almost if you were to think of the the superpowers of the world. Um, whether it had been the British Empire in its day or America up until recently. Um, uh, it's that thing, again, of looking at sort of making those adult decisions and those compassionate decisions and looking and saying, actually, I caused this. So maybe, you know, they do look and say, well, actually, yeah, we did. We, we are the reason that um, Al-Qaeda exists or ISIS exists or the British, you know, say, acknowledging... Yeah, we are the British. We are the reason that the IRA exists. Or, and you know what? We are going to take responsibility for that and do the best thing to make sure that we then use the power we have to do good. You know, you can see it in that respect. That that's that's what the decision should be made to sort of you know we should have this Olympus on Earth in some form. We we've purely we've seriously got the ability to do it, but we but we don't because we're human. And you almost need to elevate yourself above that to be able to do it. Yeah, I mean, I find, I find, uh, you know, thinking about the the political aspect, and you know, I mean, first of all, I should say that you know, Miracle Man does not get enough credit for being a political work. Mm. Um, it's certainly there in book one. I mean, Alan Moore is 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 still um, well, you know, he's not. A young man anymore, but uh, you know he kind of started writing a little later. Um, but uh, he is very politically active. Um, you know he's activated like a lot of people of that age were by Thatcher and by you know the absolute horror of what was coming out of uh, the uh, British government and Downing Street at the time. Um, and I think V for Vendetta kind of gets the credit for being, uh, you know, a political work. But I think, you know, Miracle Man, while not as on the surface, is yeah. just as political. I think that, um, you know, the thing about superpower, um, it reminds me of, um, you know, when Barack Obama came into office. I mean, Barack Obama, a uh, black man. Yeah. who came to understand his identity as a black man, as, as someone who is within the American experience, but also um, has the wounds and is part of a legacy of fighting for civil rights and of America not living up to what it preached. Mm. And he went on a tour around the world and he talked frankly about um, things that America had, had done that were not right, um, that were exactly what you are talking about, about taking accountability and taking responsibility. 
Yeah. And it seems to me that when you when we talk about like superpowers and we we see the superhero as a metaphor for superpowered government, um, you know that kind of you know, and I, and I don't think it's just the two parties here, but I mean that kind of sort of adult uh, recognition of um, having in turn the Japanese. You know, being the country that uh, of segregation, of mm-hmm. slavery, but also being the country uh, of Nuremberg, being the country that created the concept of crimes against humanity, mm. being the country that uh, apologized for uh, interning the Japanese, being the country that you know should have done more about the Holocaust, but uh, but did play a part in in liberating Europe. Um, you know, there are things that we can be proud of, but there are things that we, and, and this is true of, of Britain as well, um, there's a lot to be proud of, but there's a lot to apologize for and know that you did wrong. Exactly. And part of being an adult is recognizing both those things. And it seems to me that the critics of that in both of our countries do have a mentality that's closer to the 1950s and 60s, yeah. they're the good guys, you know, they're the bad guys. And yeah, Superman tricks every teeny buddy, and he's kind of a dick, but it doesn't matter. He's the primary colored good guy, and I will not listen to, you know, criticism of our policies or our history or our injustices. No, and that's totally true. That's it. It's, it's You're right. Those, those, those people that do, you know, lean towards that way, they, they have this rose-tinted view of what that past was, you know, of, of when they, b- they believed they were great. And like you say, things were simpler, you know, like in bold technicolour and, and um, heroes were heroes and bad guys were bad guys. And it's sort of, they, that sort of, I think, that, that mentality carries through. Um, but the fact is, like you say, Alan Moore, through Miracle Man and like V for Vendetta and later Watchmen, was raising these issues in the early 80s. So, you know... But nearly 40 years ago, he was actually trying to have these conversations and say, you know, we really should be looking at the world in this way. Or at least there's an opportunity to look at the world in this way. And it's just, I think, I do think Miracleman you know, flies under the radar and should probably, I wish would be raised up in that respect. Um, well, I think, I think so too. But I, I also want to say, like, you know, this, this thing about the way in which not so much Miracle Man, but, you know, sort of revisionism and, and darker, more realistic superhero stories, you know, get made fun of and mm. get attacked. And sometimes they should be. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, look, uh, you know, I am not a fan of some of, uh, you know, these revisions where it's like, I have razor blades for blood and breathing <laughs> is horrifying and, and it seems gratuitous. Um, but... You know, um, what you and I are just talking about is having a an adult viewpoint on the world. And I think that there is a corollary. Look, I mean, I'm, I love Batman 66. I mean, mm-hmm. I love some, you know, silly, fun superhero stuff as much as the next guy. But I think there is a connection between that worldview in which everything ends for the best the good guys always win. Um, you know, that America deserves its position and hasn't done anything wrong. And, and, you know, there is a corollary 
disparity between these two mentalities. Mm. Um, there is a way in which the superhero story, you know, I mean, and you and I have talked about it before, of just kind of, you know, it doesn't matter how many horrible things Tony Stark does in those Marvel movies. He is never the villain. Mm. He is still, you're still supposed to rally behind him because, you know, he's the star-spangled, primary-colored protagonist. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really a dangerous thing. I think there's a connection between uh, the way we tell those stories and how we look at the world. And I think, Alan, you know, you're right to say Alan Moore is making those connections 40 years ago. Mm. And as I, say, you know, as I say, he wasn't the only one. There were a lot of other... Um political cartoonists and political activists that were clear, you know were making those statements at the time but uh, you know Alan Moore was clearly you know had a vo- had a, a, a medium through which to sort of you know uh, present it and was doing so um and I think that it does it does run through all the in miracle man and let's not let's not you know um hide the fact that you know we've gone through this as a political allegory and it does make all these statements in you know, different levels of subtlety. However, this book does still contain um, a floating baby that can talk, uh, and <laughs> and a- aliens that that don't understand the the, the concept of distance because they can travel anywhere in the universe at an instant. So it it has its moments, like you say, those sort of uh, silver age oddities and craziness still exist in the book, and you know, I oh, yeah. I, I love them for it. Um, you know that Miracle Man does have a baby uh, with his wife, and that baby sort of says "Mama" within the first second of being born, and then goes on. It's called Winter. The baby's called Winter, and it chose its own name. And just, so there's, there's, you know, there's, there's some just um, amazing imagination that goes on. Um, but I, I do want to talk about the Warp Smiths as well. I don't think we sort of yeah, really talked. Um, explain really what they are, what they are, because it's 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 quite an intricate idea, really. Well, I mean, okay, so so the Wolfsmith. I mean, keep in mind. I mean, let let's back up and what we call Miracle Man, which is by the way the name I prefer. Yeah. Um, you know, started as Marvel Man, which was published in the fifties and sixties in Britain. Once, uh, uh, you know, um. Guy White lost the license to Captain Marvel, mm-hmm. and you know, so because he he, you know, just continued these stories, he recast it as British characters, and so this was, according to Trump, the first British superhero. And so Alan Moore's idea in for the magazine Warrior was to bring back the first British superhero, get the rights to this, and bring it back and do a modern kind of updating. And he had all of these ideas for how that would go. Along with that, Warrior uh, was going to, and did have other features, right? So it had V for Vendetta. Mm -hmm. And one of those features was going to be Warpsmith. And Warpsmith was like, so so like V for Vendetta is kind of, I mean, (laughs) there's a silliness here. I mean, V for Vendetta is kind of like their take on Batman. Yeah. Um, it's set in the future, it's dystopian, but it, it, it's kind of Batman. I mean, uh, Miracle Man is the sort of, like, Superman slash Captain Marvel character. Mm-hmm. Warp Smith is Green Lantern. Mm. Um, it's just that it's not, 
you know, a human Hal Jordan who is drafted into the Space Cop Patrol. Um, it is featuring an alien, and they are a really alien society, and they are, you know, like the soldiers or the cops of uh, these giant beings who are like, you know, the let's make these really alien versions of the Guardians of the Galaxy. And they are, and part of the twist of this concept is, you know, the warpsmiths basically can teleport and they can, you know, manipulate space and time and, and their brains are hyper quick. Mm. And that's kind of their superpower instead of having a Green Lantern ring. And they're fighting the key cues or the keys, um, which they're engaged in this long running, you know, sort of millennia old war with another species that is a species that can, um, that basically uses another dimension to create additional bodies. So if the warpsmiths are super fast and have these teleportation powers, um, the keys have like, you know, you're in a fight and you say, oh, I'm going to summon like the, the giant gunship body, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously that, you know, ties back into Captain Marvel because, uh, and into uh, Miracle Man because basically the, the spaceship that crashed that allowed them, Gargunda, to create uh, Miracle Man was a key spaceship, and he's using this alternate dimension in which you store bodies uh, to allow Mike Moran and others to uh, swap out for this superhero body. Um, so the idea of Wolfsmith was a version of the Green Lantern that has like teleportation powers instead of like ring-based willpower, and then it was tied into the Miracle Man stuff through them having this war with a, a body-changing faction. Was that intentional? Was that that tie-in intentional from the beginning? Because they sort of, when when the when Marvel released the issues, um, really from I think book one, they sort of they have backup stories that are like the the Warpsmiths doing their thing, sort of like you say those they are the strips that would have appeared in in Warrior, um, and it feels like you know if I was to take a modern a modern equivalent, it would be. You have your main Batman story, then you have a backup story, and it's that backup story that then pays off six issues later. Um, you know, you are being given sort of like forewarned information. It's it's that, isn't it? Really, that's how it sort of set up. But was yeah. that the, was that the intention originally, or was it just a happy accident? Or well, yes, it was the intention. Um, so so um, the idea was that. Uh, these Warpsmith stories would roll out more regularly than they ended up doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, it was only a two-parter uh, called Cold War, Cold Warrior that was printed in Warpsmith. Um, and later, Gary Leach and Alan Moore did a follow-up story that was printed in black and white in the anthology A1. And those three stories, counting that one as, as two parts, are the only Warpsmith stories that were ever done. Um, but when they were starting Warrior, they had a timeline that was, um, and, and this is actually in the uh, Kimoda book that's a Miracle Man companion that Tomorrow's published. Um, they actually had a timeline um, of how V for Vendetta, 
interconnect these different features. Um, kind of like, you know, 2000, I mean, War, I mean, Warrior was like a, a adult version of 2000 AD, an adult yeah. kind of creator rights version of 2000 AD. And in the same way that those strips in 2000 AD kind of grew together and were interconnected and some of it worked and some of it didn't, but um, in the same way, some of the strips from Warrior were going to connect. What's key here is so um, before Warpsmith shows up in Miracle Man, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just imagine you're reading Warrior, and and I forget I forget what issue whether it's like three or four, but you know Warrior is coming out and it's coming out kind of you know bi-monthly, quarterly, whenever they can get it out, and you get to like issue I forget what number it is, but it's like four or something, and it and they dub that like the Warrior Summer Special. And uh, it was really like the, a standard issue, but it was kind of disguised that way, I wow. assume, to get a little more sales. And in that issue, there's no Miracle Man strip that continues the book one basic story. And you're just a few chapters in. Instead, there's the flashback, there's the flash forward to uh, what ended up becoming uh, Miracle Man number 15, the fight. The mm. penultimate destruction of London fight, and it is a story. It's uh, Steve Dillon. It's got three artists. Steve Dillon did some of the pages. Yes. Um, and that has uh, Wolf Smith in it, fighting alongside Miracle Man against Kid Miracle Man, then Marvel Man, and in Silence, which is kind of like the Miracle Man version of the Fortress of Solitude uh, mm. underwater, um, and. So that was like, I mean, imagine reading this at the time. You know, there's this character, Warsmith, who hasn't even been introduced yet, who is clearly going to connect to the Marvel Man narrative. The Marvel Man narrative is like showing you its climax from years in the future. Um, And just going like, yeah, we are ambitious here and we know where all of this is going and it's all kind of going to connect. Um, And then ultimately... It didn't, and you know they wound up only doing a few Warsmith stories. Sorry to blabber on, but no, uh, no, it's, you it's, know I love that original idea. It is in the show, and that's sort of what I wanted to get to. I love the idea of the Warpsmiths. I think they were great. Um, just the concept of them as being, like you say, those cops, uh, this this alien police force that exists um, in this one area is so so good. And then to tie it into all the key stuff and. Uh, and and then obviously that that pays off later down the line as well, uh, but the whole thing I, I do I think it's fantastically well laid out and it was ambitious um, to try and build up to that, especially in the British, you know, uh, comic I suppose at the time. Um, so yeah, no, it, I just think they're, they're a great design, they're a great design and they're a great idea. And as I think we've said before, and some you know, we've talked about things before, I like the fact that they are so alien. You know, these aren't just blue uh, humans or, you know, these actually have like really alien concepts in their relationships, in their um, rituals, in their sort of understanding of the way the universe works. It's all, you know, it is incredibly alien and it's very well thought out. And I think it's a, it's a really, uh, and to then to build it in um, towards the climax is so, so good. 
Um, and not just not just the warp but the keys as well, because obviously when they do create uh, Olympus at the end, um, they represent sort of each of their gods. Um, or the pantheon is created, and they actually they use one of the keys. There's a key representative to Earth, who sort of becomes a god of the underworld. So he looks after um, the bodies that they have in this other dimension, this infraspace. Infraspace. And I just think it's nice. It's it's a really like you know, um, neat, well thought out. And you, I wouldn't expect anything less from Alan Moore really, but it's a very well thought out, neat uh, package and sort of you know uh, of ideas. Um, that, yeah, that... I I agree, but but I also feel like I I feel like I feel like there's a Warsmith book, right? Mm. Like. I want more Warsmith. I love the Warsmith. I, I agree with everything you've said. Uh, I want more Warsmith. Uh, yes. And I feel like, the same way, like, you know, Miracle Man is kind of structured as three Alan Moore books and then, you know, three Neil Gaiman books that have yet to be finished mm. uh, with Apocrypha kind of tucked in there. Um, you know, I feel like there's at least one solid, like, you know, the idea of Warrior was that, you know, these were going to be, you know, if not endlessly continuing features, certainly, uh, you know, a few books, which then, you know, Dead Skin was going to be able to repackage and sell, you know, uh, abroad. Mm. Uh, and I feel like there's a, there's a warrior book. And one of the things in writing about Miracle Man for Sequard that, that, you know, occurred to me is, you know, if you think of Cold War, Cold Warrior as, uh, the first Warsmith story, right? Like, that is your introduction to the Warsmith. It's your, it's your first chapter of, like, you know, the Warsmith book. It's about the death of... Oh, there's a death in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the Warsmiths dies. And that continuation in A1 is them mourning that loss. It seems to me that, that if you run that forward, the Warsmith who's present in Asia Chorn, who's present in the Miracle Man story, dies in number 15, helping mm. to save the Earth and stop Kid Miracle Man. And it seems to me that there was a book there that begins with an unrelated death and ends with Asia Chorn's death. And that pack of Warpsmiths uh, sort of mourning him again at the end, but in the context of this experiment on Earth in which they're trying to coexist with the Keys, um, you know, in this special relationship on Earth. Um, so I feel as if there's like an untold Warsmith epic. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, how awesome would this be as like uh, a, a movie series or something, right? Like, you know. I, I know, I can see, I know exactly what you said, I can imagine it, like say it's, there would be two sort of, even if it's just sort of a, um, you know, like a, a six to ten issue series that's sort of like, okay, well, here's your start. You know, that what happened with the Warpsmiths in that tie-in bit. Well, they, you wouldn't even have to have it appear in Miracle Man. It would just be Miracle Man and then this other book. And like you said, they would tie in, they would come in and touch points at that, you know, in the end of book three and then they could spear off again. Um no, I agree. Exactly. I, I think, you know, I'd, I'd love to see that, actually. It'd be amazing. Yeah, and I, and I, and I feel as if that, that story that is that flash-forward story with uh, Steve Dillon working on it could be incorporated mm. into the, the Warsmith climax. And then 
you don't have to throw it away or, or rule it out of continuity or whatever because it doesn't really fit in, in Miracle Man 15. Um, and you know how, you know, when you have two superhero titles and they're both dealing with Crisis on Infinite Earths or whatever crossover it is, it, there are always, like, a, a few incongruities between the two. Yeah. And the one in Miracle Man is told, like you say, in flashback anyway. We don't mm. know that it's 100% accurate. So we kind of have, like, an issue worth of the, like, six-issue or whatever Wolf Smith uh, epic. Um, and... and it's just never been done, um, but I but I kind of feel like I, I want that to exist, right? Yeah, no, I agree. Okay, it would be, it would it, it would. There's so much there to sort of like say to unpick, and so the, it shows how big the universe of this thing is. There's so much more you could do, um, and you keep getting glimpses of it. And I think yeah, a Warpsmith book would be able to explore that in a whole different way. Um, in in so many different ways as well, like different angles of it. That be that would be amazing. Um, yeah, I, I want Neil Gaiman to finish. We haven't talked about the Gaiman stuff. I know we're running out of time, but I, I love it. I think it's I think the Gaiman stuff is a masterpiece. I want him to finish that. Mm. I want a Wolfsmith book. I would love to see whether it's in continuity or not. Uh, maybe some female creators because Miracle Man has. Uh, you know, uh, Liz Moran is, is maybe not given her uh, full shrift. Mm. There's some uh, a little bit of rapey stuff in there. What if what if Marvel did a, a Miracle Woman special and invited female creators to come in and and, and do some uh, Miracle Woman stories? Um, I would love to see you know uh, not ongoing series that keep going forever and the stuff isn't. Uh, and, you know, isn't uh, up to snuff, but you know, just uh, a few of these things done and keep that quality up. Um, um, and I think that would be in the spirit of Warrior and what it was doing. Oh, I agree. And there were so many fantastic creators today that really could contribute something brilliant to this. Like you say, um, uh, but more than anything, like you say, we'll, we'll quickly touch on it. Maybe it'll be worth coming back to talk about Neil Gaiman stuff in the future. But like you say, he, he this this book. The, the, the Alan Moore era sort of comes to a close and it sort of it brings it to a point of, of Olympus. Like, you know, you now have these gods on Earth and you do wonder where it can be taken. Um, and Neil Gaiman, being Neil Gaiman, takes it in a very Gaiman-esque way, really. It's not, you know, there's no... I think there's, there's, I don't think there is any sort of, like, you know, there's no sort of fisticuffs, it's not big punch-ups, it's not that... It's incredibly um, diverse. It, you know, it, 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 I think it's, it's six issues in the first book, um, mm-hmm. and it, it, it just it, it explores um, different ideas of how the world has now changed with these with these gods, you know, living among us, and it has some of the most beautiful issues. Um, oh my god. You know, both Absolutely. both written and the artwork, um, and we will. It deserves just those six issues deserve a like a real deep dive. And I think we will have to come back and talk about this separately because they are. Um, what, and in fact, actually, one of the things I was going to mention is um, reading in book three. Uh, I think it's the first part of book three, maybe issue eleven or twelve. There's a moment where obviously uh, Miracle Man is sort of. Um, 
walking around what we've, we learn become become to learn is Olympus and he talks about things so he mentions that people come um, to request favors you know humans they go on a, like a pilgrimage to come and request favors and um, there's another one that talks that it actually mentions that there are now fields of windmills that are used to generate power which you know now that now there are um, but in, it, but in that that there's pe- there's there's people that live in those windmills and sort of live and maintain them. Both of those parts form an issue for Neil Gaiman later on. He uses both, so he's, he's you know he's obviously read through it and just picks out those little nuggets and turns them into an entire issue uh, each. So each has two issues worth of material, I think, and they are wonderful. I mean, the the one you know. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to get into it because I want to talk about it again later and I think it's another couple of hours talk but just the one of the, the, the pilgrimage that those people take to finally meet oh God. and ask Miracle Man and ask yeah. for the favour is it doesn't it doesn't really appear in it to the very end but you you get a you get a journey through Olympus and it is it is it's outstanding it's so well written and so well uh, constructed uh, and, and beautifully illustrated um, you know uh, that's he tries to do like a slightly different artistic style with each story and yeah I mean that's uh, you know where they I mean you know there's a, there's a man going to Olympus who's lost you know, who's losing his daughter mm. um, and Miracle Man can do anything right I mean why can't Miracle Man save my little girl is that beneath his concern yeah uh, you know how do you I mean, these issues, these questions of, like, utopia, um, you know, are, are fascinating. You know, what does Miracle, what is, what is Miracle Man choosing to pay attention to? I mean, some of it seems capricious. Um, and, and, you know, I think of, um, you know, you're right. I so often think about how everything in the guy and stuff is, like, there in the Alan Moore stuff, and it's just, uh, you know, a scene, a character coming back mm. to things them out but you know when alan moore turned it over to to you know promised it to neil gaiman several years before he had completed it he uh neil gaiman basically hadn't written anything i mean he might have done uh, violent cases mm. but that was about it and alan moore turned it over you know was going to turn it over to him and he said there's just one thing uh i've eliminated all conflict i've killed you know the yeah. villain and I've, and I've created a perfect utopia and eliminated all conflict uh, by the end of my run. So good luck with that. Yeah. And I think the fact that Ga- Gaiman could turn that story, and Gaiman doesn't bring, you know, he kind of, it's clear that like some version of the villain was going to come back by the end of, of Gaiman's run. Mm. But, but, you know, the, the Golden Age, uh, which is book four, the stunning success of that, the stunning beauty of that, to me, put such a lie to, uh, you know, like people saying, oh, well, we've got to, you know, make uh, Spider-Man or Superman not married anymore because it's just, we can't figure stories to tell of mm. that. Neil Gaiman did the golden age in which there's no conflict, right? It's yeah. all about the human condition. It's all about it's beautiful and, and masterful, and I think of it so often. Uh, why can't writers you know, and, and, you know, superhero stories uh, make interesting stories that are challenging 
like that in these challenging circumstances. And I think it's like you say it's the fact that it's um, it's both a, 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 both a, 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 a what's it and a, what's it and a, what's it and a curse. It's like a, a pleasure and a curse. It's a, you know it's a good thing and bad. I mean he's, he's been given this sort of you know challenge of saying as you say Alan Moore sort of brought it to the conclusion by saying yeah I've resolved everything it's actually all good uh, you know now go do with it what you want sort of thing um, and he could have he could have gone the way of many you know artists and said well there's an alien invasion or you know um, the key representative turns out to be a baddie you know and all this other stuff he could have gone uh, do you know what? he could have gone that sort of way and it could have been quite cheap and quite thing i mean but this is neil gaiman it was never going to be that but but he does he takes that challenge and he builds on something and uh, one of the things that sort of i think is amazing about that the, the fourth book in this is that it's clearly building to something else because it's it's almost like building a foundation stone. That first book, or this, sorry, the fourth book, is him sort of taking those characters, those little nuggets, like the, you know, they go on, a, there's a uh, humans going on a pilgrimage to ask, um, you know, to literally fall at the feet of God and ask for favors, or um, the story of the man who lives in the windmill, or the 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 traveling through um, the world of the dead beneath Olympus, and that's where you find out there's another Gargunza and all these other stories. They're all sort of like you know, say they're they're, yeah. they're they're drip feeding information, and whenever I do read it, I, I, my heart breaks for the fact that it's not complete. Because I'm like, right, well that's that you can. There's little nuggets you think that is something that's that's got to build to something. There's something more to that. Um, well, you know what? Uh, you know there were two issues published of the Silver Age, um, and I've read those issues, and they've also published the original art to what was going to be a third issue, which was completed when Eclipse folded. And um, uh, Young Miracle Man, mm. you know, who was part of the original three, uh, you know, along with Kid Miracle Man, uh, comes back. And that's kind of the inciting incident of uh, the Silver Age. Um, and it's a very different story. It's not like Golden Age at all. It's a continuing story. Um, and uh, young Miracle Man comes back, and he is horrified by what Miracle Man has done, and he's horrified by the open sexuality of Miracle Woman, and he's a product of the Silver Age stories and can't adapt. Mm. Um, and and it's really quite fascinating. Um, oh, lo- I've never read those. Wow, I'm assuming there are. I bet if I was tracking those down, it would probably be very, very difficult and very, very costly. So, I'm not. I shall look. Maybe. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm sure you know you can get a hold of them. Um, uh, you know, online somewhere. Um, you know, but they're they're technically out of print, and the the theory is that they're going to be redrawn and. Um, and the whole story is going to be finished, but Marvel has the right to do with it, and uh, it hasn't happened mm. uh, for years now, so we shall see. Yeah, I'd love it to happen, and it, it's I, th- I think it would um, it would make money. I think people would buy it. Um, you know, it's, it's Neil Gaiman, um, but I think really that, that I mean, you know, you say you know that's obviously what happens. I say about it lays the um, the foundation for that. 
one of the things is because one of the backup stories is the these small robots going into infraspace and trying to I mean, trying yeah. to rebuild them, isn't it? Yes, right, and, and right. That's uh, the retrieval, and then uh, that's kind of like the prologue to to the Silver Age. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and I think you know, just to wrap up, I mean, one of the things that I that that I loved about uh, discovering Miracle Man was that it not only was it staggeringly good Alan Moore stuff, but the idea that you had a series where you know, Alan Moore had written staggeringly good stuff at the, at the beginning of the 80s and the close of the 80s, um, you know, before Watchmen and after Watchmen, um, and had produced kind of a masterpiece, uh, you know, whether it was book one or book three, at, at, at sort of like both ends of it, and that you handed the series off to Neil Gaiman. Mm. I mean, can you imagine if, if there were a comic series that, you know, like Alan Moore did amazing work for it, and then his successor on the title is Neil Gaiman. What well, you know, you'd say this is an embarrassment of riches. I mean, what title is this? How do I not know this? Yeah, this is it. I think this is it. You know, everyone talks about these other books and of of both. You know, both these creators, um, of both sort of Gaiman and Moore and stuff. And then when you do, you sort of speak to this. You sort of say. Oh, actually, there's all there is all this other stuff. Like you know, go go and read this. And I think this is, um, as you say, an embarrassment of riches, of imagination, of um, you know, artist artistic talent. And I think it is. It's amazing. More people should be um, reading this book. And it, I wish it would get some um, keeping on going. Uh, apparently, I'm, I'm, I've literally just googled it because I was curious when you said this more. So apparently. Um, in July of last year, um, there was a, an announcement. So this is sort of July 2018. Uh, and it, sa- it says, Neil Gaiman says, I'm thrilled that all the barriers that were keeping Mark and me from working on Miracle Man have now been cleared. We're thrilled to finally be back in the world of, of Mike Moran and Dick Dickie Dauntless uh, and the marvels of the miracles. That's Neil um, Gaiman. And Mark, Mark Buckingham said, I'm so incredibly excited to be back to work with Neil. Fingers on keyboards are going tippity-tap, pencils are sharpened and going scritchy-scratch. Miracle Man is coming back 2019. So, well, let's fingers crossed, everything crossed. I mean, that's if that's the case, if that's the truth, I'm... You know, this is a perfect time for this issue to be coming out, this podcast to be coming out, because that I would love that to complete this story uh, would be amazing uh, yeah I second that fully and I mean I think this is one of the, the real masterpieces of mm. not just superhero comics uh, but uh, of comics period and uh, it's unfinished mm. and I would love you know I mean I've been waiting for 20 years <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> So let's hope for that. So I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll, we shall wrap up there. Um, but thank you very much, Julian. That was amazing. Well, it's been an honor. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. And I hope everyone checks out your Patreon and subscribes uh, to the podcast. Uh, it's one of my favorite podcasts. So thank Thanks you so much, Scott.
Okay, guys, there we have it. A full, in-depth review of what I consider to be one of the best works by Alan Moore. I hope you enjoyed our discussion. But if you have any thoughts on Miracle Man, please let me know. Get in contact. Email me at 20thcenturygeek at gmail.com or find us on social media, Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, all under 20th Century Geek. I always love to hear from you and continue the discussion. Also, 20th Century Geek has a Patreon page. I would love to say that I'm a perfect being creating a test tube that has been able to build a multi-million pound business empire. Unfortunately, that's not the case. So any and all donations are greatly appreciated and help keep this podcast going. If you don't want to give money to 20th Century Geek, that's fine. We now have an Amazon wish list for all the books that we could use for research in future episodes. If you're feeling generous, there are some great books on there and we love second-hand books in 20th Century Towers. Thanks for listening, guys. See you next time. Kimota! Mm-hmm.